Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. This week on Backroom Politics, the murder of James Foley. Should this be an awakening of new U.S. foreign policy? Can America stop the Islamic extremism movement? Is it in the national interest to do so? The president, a golf course and a smile. Critics call the president detached from his office and political reality. Is this a fair shot or politics as usual? And speaking of responsibility, did New Mexico GOP Senate candidate Alan Way go too far in his campaign ad featuring the James Foley murder video? This and tell me a story this week on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. Good afternoon out there in Radio Land. It is time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Tuesday. That means it's time for Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as I do every Tuesday to my left, he is the former eight-term member of Congress representing the 8th Congressional, or the 2nd Congressional District of Washington State. He is Congressman Al Swift. Hello, Congressman. Good afternoon. And to my 11 o'clock across the table, he is the former floor chief for then Congressman Gerald R. Ford, the former vice president of government affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hi, Bob. Hi, Justin. Glad to be here. And to my 12 o'clock directly across the table, as he is every Tuesday, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce who served under at last count four presidents. He is longtime Senate insider in Washington Stimson Fellow, he is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin, and goodbye, Summer. Exactly. And to my one o'clock across the table, she is the former General Counsel to the Maritime Administration and former House Counsel to the Homeland Security Committee under Benny Thompson. She's the Honorable Denise Kreff. Hello, Denise. Hello, Justin. And to my one o'clock, he is the former Executive Director of the Democratic Party of the Great State of Maryland. He is a longtime Washington insider and former 20th Century Fox lobbyist. He is, uh, oh my gosh, I just, <laughs> Carl Thuvin. I'm trying to stay one step ahead, Carl. Hello. Uh, uh, exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Kimberly, and, right? Yeah, exactly. And to my right, he is, he is the bar certified attorney and political operative Washington insider, Dan Lipner Esquire. Hello, Daniel. 
Hey, Justin, glad to be here. We've obviously got a uh, very jam-packed show, uh, but we want to start off, obviously, with a very serious subject. Last week, as we were coming off the air, breaking news came across the wires that uh, American freelance journalist James Foley from New Hampshire uh, was brutally murdered in the deserts somewhere between Syria and Iraq. The location is not certain. Uh, this has spurned quite a bit of intelligence gathering on all allied parts. Even some of our non-allies are starting to get concerned about this organization that we know as ISIS or ISIL. Uh, when it came out, the video was released. It is, I don't know if anybody's actually seen the video. The, I actually saw the uncensored video. It is, it is, it is something you cannot unsee. It is a brutal, brutal video. It is horrific to view. Uh, I don't wish that on anybody. But uh, as a result, the perpetrator of this horrific crime uh, that, is the, that is depicted in the video was noticeably with a British accent, at which point the uh, British intelligence services, MI5 in the internal side, MI6 on the external and Theresa May and the Home Office in Great Britain began an immediate push to find out all they can. And according to sources that we have in the British Embassy, uh, they are close to identifying who the individual is, which would be great to see him come to justice. Uh, there was a um, – the other day there was a memorial service for uh, – uh, James Foley in his hometown of Manchester, New Hampshire, um, and just a, a beautiful service. They're, the parents read the final letter that they had received from him, and just truly moving, but we'll get to that part of, uh, in a second. Uh, n number one, um, we can say a lot about James Foley, and, our, and obviously our thoughts and, and our hearts go out to the Foley family and all their friends and, and the journalistic community that's there, uh, but Bob Hines, you, you've been around journalism all your life. You've been around big journalism through your term at NBC. When, when these journalists take on these difficult situations, um, this is a journalist who had been caught once and released before and went back to Syria to cover. That's dedication. Do they really fully understand the possibilities that this could be a life-threatening life choice that they make by going in? I don't think there's any doubt about that. I mean, it's, history shows that there are, uh, there are too many journalists uh, over the last many years uh, who have been killed, captured, killed, uh, held for hostage, and, and whatever. I mean, it, it is a very dangerous business. And not just recently. I mean, Ernie Pyle in the Second World War uh, was killed. Yeah. It, it's a very dangerous thing, and... Uh, uh, most of the ones, most of these journalists uh, that have been killed recently, are some of these, these, uh, I guess you'd call them, you know, they're not. They're freelancers. They're freelancers. They're, freelancers. they're not tied to any particular media organization, but they're freelancers out there working and, and developing stories. And many of them get into some very scary places. And obviously, you know, this is not the first time that Mr. Foley had been, had been captured. He was captured once before. But, you know, you have to, he was dedicated, he was a good reporter, he loved his work, and everything you can hear about him. 
but uh, this that horrible uh, video of him being, you know, basically just having his head sawed off was just was, was just the most horrible thing I've ever seen. Alan Moore. In prior wars, um, where you had where you had identifiable sides in armies that were attached to governments, reporters would go in at their peril because there's a lot of shooting going on and bombing and mortar fire and so on, and it was quite risky if you were trying to observe and record what you were seeing. So the casualty rates were high always because you basically have these unarmed people trying to get images uh, and interviews. The ground rules have changed, not so much in my judgment because the, the folks today are freelancers, if you will, but because journalists have become targets, targets of capture, targets of kidnap, targets of ransom demands. And then as we saw in this gruesome, horrendous case, um, targets of a, of a grotesque kind of propaganda where these guys, uh, for some reason, thought that they could frighten Americans by, in, in effect, mutilating someone, um, and then showing a living person saying, this one's up to you, Mr. President Obama. Um, that kind of extortion doesn't work with Americans. The irony of all of this is that it united America more than, than anything we've seen in a while behind the notion that we need to go get these sons of bitches and do harm to them. Now, Dan Lipner, uh, it, it had been widely reported that originally ISIS had approached several journalistic sources asking for ransom, and that ransom was apparently in the $130 million range, uh, it, it, at which point they said, look, we just don't have $130 million. We're, we can't put this ransom up. They were uh, even approached uh, other foreign governments, including allegedly the uh, Qatari government in Qatar, uh, looking for money to free this uh, journalist James Foley. But it, it, it's a fine line between... You know, does America actually, as other countries have, i.e. France, put up that kind of money to save an American journalist, or are we, in fact, holding true to not negotiating with terrorists, and is that a good thing? Well, true-ish. Uh, the not negotiating with terrorists is, uh, I, I stand by the, 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 the decision that uh, we do not negotiate with terrorists, especially outright in the open, because it only creates it only creates more targets. But in addition to that, uh, there needs to be a conversation as far as what happens to that money. Are we in fact just continuing to empower these same bad guys? These funds are not just going to be used for humanitarian purposes. They're going to be used to recruit and continue to arm these same bad guys. So while this is an absolute tragedy, similar to the tragedy with uh, Daniel Pearl, it's, it is something that needs to be taken seriously, that we need to be paying attention, that, yeah, these, these reporters out there getting the news and keeping us informed are heroes, and they're, they're doing the, the democratic process well by keeping, keeping us informed. Denise Kraft. 
All right, legally they can't pay the money because there are not only laws, but there are executive orders that have been signed specifically prohibiting Americans or those tied with American cash to negotiating with terrorists. I mean, and this goes back many years. I mean, I was a generation that remembers Terry White. I mean, he was held for eight years because it was a policy, even though he was a religious figure, that we were not going to negotiate with terrorists. Um, to me, what is striking, however, is that we have one that was killed last week, but we had a second one that was returned, I think it was yesterday. Yes, correct. And, and, and so, I mean, I'm just asking the question of why was one killed and one wasn't. Well, and what different, was different that? Group, different groups. Well, but, Al -Qaeda affiliate, but it's an Al-Qaeda affiliate, and that's what worries me, is that is ISIS, willing to, or ISIS, ISIS willing to go so far that they're not going to care? whereas others may be willing to negotiate. And if ISIS is that different, then we really have a problem. Well, on that, on that yeah. same subject, you've got a situation where ISIS, uh, there are conflicting intelligence reports, because in that same video is another American journalist that's being shown and being offered up as, you know, this will happen again. There are conflicting intelligence reports, several of which say that this didn't happen recently. This could have happened as long as a month ago, and that the American journalists that are being held captive by ISIS is in, are in fact either dead or will be dead here shortly. Uh, that's a concern. That is a very big concern. That that ISIS just literally has no. What's the word I'm looking for? They they, they just have no concern for the well-being of these people. They just have no real reality with humanity. Uh, Alan Moore. I think, I think uh, what we don't know is, is exactly how these people's minds work. They, 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 they can be fairly clever in some things, and then like anyone, they can make misjudgments. Um, our only hope, frankly, on this is that, that they thought they had a strategy that might frighten us or cause us to do something different rather than unite us. They don't, they're crazy, but they're not idiots. So there's a chance that, that perhaps when they saw the world's reaction, both to their video and then the world's reaction to the release by this other uh, not affiliated with them, Al-Qaeda group, it's conceivable that they say, you know, we thought this might work. It's backfiring on us. There's an international manhunt to find the guy with the British accent who is on the video. Maybe there are other ways, better ways, to make use of these people than simply gratuitously kill them. At the same time, when they're trying to win over, if you, if you pardon the expression, the hearts and minds of locals inside Iraq and, and eastern Syria, this business of summary execution creates so much terror that it probably is still achieving in some perverse way some of their objectives. Bob Hines. You know, I don't, I don't think that they're trying to make friends at all. I think they are just absolutely committed. These are, these are people who are, as far as extreme as you can be, in the sense that for them, if you're not if you're not an extremist, they're going to kill you. They don't have any. They don't have any compunction about. It. Well, this is a group. I mean, this is a group, Bob. That I mean, literally in Iraq, took an entire Christian population and put them on the top of a mountain, 
went village by village in the swamp and saying, if you're not Muslim, you're going to convert. And oh, by the way, we're going to kill you anyway. Or you're not Muslim enough and you're going to convert and we're going to kill you anyway. Yeah. Uh, the, the leader of this organization, uh, uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, is, is, a, is, is a maniac, but he's open about this. He has made a point of saying, if you are not with us, you will die. And has made a point of saying, we, our mission is to kill the infidel and has come out and said, our mission, we're going to kill Americans. That makes us go to heaven with a thousand virgins. Denise Krebs. This may be such a bad situation that we're about to revert to the old saying, the enemy, my enemy is my friend. We may be heading towards joining hands with God. I, mean, which, I, I think that we've already started. Which, funny you should mention that. The news That's coming out of Washington today is, is that the president has already approved Syrian spy flights yeah. Yeah. over Syri- engaging yeah. Syrian airspace. We, we've got a very, we've got a very, almost volatile situation with our foreign policy right now because the guy that we wanted gone in uh, Assad, the president of Syria, is now somebody we may have to get into bed with. Same thing, the Iranians, same deal. We literally went to the Iranians when ISIS started making their influx. We're going to have to deal with Tehran. Uh, Dan Lipner, then Bob Hines. Well, which kind of goes to show that we're not any better in the region than the British were 100 years ago as far as predicting what the outcomes are going to be when you start pulling on this string, assuming that something is going to happen with an entire different consequence is what, what is what's developing. And so right now we have a whole series of bad actors, and we, we are in this case uh, looking like we're going to be back aside because he's, he might be a strong-arm bad guy, but at least he's not completely insane. I mean, also today it's worth noting that uh, both the UAE and Egypt at- attacked uh, Libya uh, without our knowledge, also to try and tamp down extremists there. So the entire region is dealing with this. And to suggest that we somehow have unique insight from 10,000 miles away is just a mistaken point of view. Bob Hines. Yeah, it's not so much that we're doing anything to be friendly with Assad. We're not. But he's a totally different creature. From these, from the, from well, he's the head of state. Yeah. I mean, I mean, as much as we would hate and to acknowledge not, it. Yeah, yeah, and we don't like him and all that stuff. But the fact of the matter is, he is no existential threat to the United States as the uh, as the ISIS folks are, according to the chief of staff, the military, and the secretary of defense, and clearly the president agrees. You know, when 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 Mr. when when Secretary of of Defense and the Joint Chiefs last had their press conference last Thursday, you know what by what they were saying that the president and they had already had a good conversation and they were doing exactly what the president wanted because you could not talk so severely about what we have to do to handle ISA without the, the authority of the President of the United States. Well Dan Lipner and that's the that's the thing that's scariest about ISIS is they're not rational actors. Exactly. That, I, they've, they've already gotten territory. They've already gotten money. No. Why on earth would you decide to, to reawaken the sleeping giant that's been trying to pull out of the region by, by, by specifically picking up a stick and poking us? Yeah. And there's not going to be boots on the ground. They're not going to see American soldiers. They're going to see American bombs falling yeah. from 10,000 feet. So 
the, the strategy where they, and to Alan's point, where they had been very clever in their media relations seems to have been somewhat mistaken on this point. So, so where that next step is, and I, I think, I, I mean, I'm speaking for myself, I can't imagine we're going to see any kind of significant American boots on the ground other than advisory roles and special forces. But, but Alan Moore. No, no, I, 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 don't, I don't disagree with, with anything you said. I'm only, I, I'm only reflecting on this term boots on the ground. We have hundreds of people now. We have special operations forces. Probably they're wearing boots. And they (laughs) probably walk around. Now, obviously, that term, boots on the ground, has come to mean large Large numbers of combat troops. But we've got a growing number of people who are smart, clever advisors with a lot of knowledge. we're, there, there's, there's always some risk of mission creep. Believe me, I am not predicting uh, the, a return to, to large numbers of, 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 of uh, combat soldiers. We, we've talked about this before. We pulled out prematurely. We should have left a larger force behind, but we are not going to put that kind of force back in at this point. We'll see what the future holds. Um, these guys uh, cannot be ignored. In terms of our partnering up with Assad, I don't. Assad has said, "Hey, if you want to fly sorties into Syria, you need to coordinate with us." Good luck with that. I think what we've done now is we're, we're doing some. We've got some fly some spy planes over eastern Syria where we're trying to figure out where the ISIS folks are and what kind of targets there are. I don't think we're going to be asking permission or coordinating. It just so happens that for now, our interests to some modest degree are overlapping with the interests of the Assad regime. That doesn't make us allies. It'll be quite interesting. It's also worth noting some of these same ISIS folks, um, and before we, it was really a term that we knew in the States, um, were, were the same uh, rebels that uh, Senators McCain and Graham were suggesting we arm at one point. Not, not true. Not that, yeah, not yeah. Alan true. Ward take that. There's a big difference between... It's perilously quite close. There's a big, these, aren't, we, these, aren't, these are not uniformed. There's a big difference, but, but you simply cannot back up the statement that these are the same guys. Now... We don't know. We never defined what we meant by moderate opposition. Well, we and, did. Now, actually, and, I want to correct that. that. That's true. On, that's it, true. It, we did, we it, did do that, though. Well, no, but it, the Free it, Syrian Army was, in fact, identified as a moderate supportive of Western assistance to oust Assad. They now are, were there members of the Free Syrian Army that could now be a part of ISIS. We don't know. We don't know. There's a that lot, we there's, don't know. There's, there's a lot we don't know. Exactly. The Mujahideen also wanted support to oust the Soviets, and lo and behold, that didn't work out well either. There is something to be said. It didn't work out for the Soviets at the time, yeah. and it didn't work out yeah. for anybody else. And 20 years later, right. it didn't work out right. either. So, I mean, again, the, the, the predicting where these guys are going to go and what that equipment's going to be used for is a problematic premise. But. Yeah. But Denise Krebs, there's a major concern with ISIS that we didn't necessarily have to this extent with Al-Qaeda or any other militant Islamic group is their funding is off the charts. 
these, this is an organization that by some accounts have more money than the gross national product of several countries that they're now invading. That is a concern, and they're continuing to get more money, more funding, more, uh, more support, and they're continuing to get more uh, equipment as they run through Iraq. Well, they're, they're, getting oil, they're, they're getting money for oil they're, they're selling to people. That's right. The well, and yeah. if, if we can't shut and off the money, they we got can't millions, shut off the They've got tens of millions of dollars out of the banks up in the middle. Yeah, and, and that's going to be a problem. Yeah. And it's not like when we, just, when we you know, stop them, they're going to say, oh, we're going to go home now. No, they're not. No, they're, they're not going to go home. And that's why you're going to see more attacks from the Egyptians and the Jordanians and the others because it's in their interest to start pushing them back. Because they don't, the encroachment's coming, and it's not going to look pretty. We have a call. We have a call on the line. Caller, you're on with Backroom Politics. What's your question? Oh, hello. My name is Chris. I was just calling in. Um, I was going to listen for a moment. If you can uh, mute me and then bring me on maybe five or ten minutes, I'd appreciate it. So I can listen for a, a moment. Thanks. Not a problem, Chris. We'll put you back on hold. Right. Um, Carl Tubin, you had a comment. Well, first of all, uh, ISIS has ISIS went through a whole bunch of towns when they went into Iraq, and they looted the bank. I mean, they had uh, it was four hundred thousand to a million dollars yeah. from 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 these small towns and banks. Four hundred million. Four hundred million. Right, four hundred million. Yeah. Uh, um, the other the other thing is is that they have come up with American equipment. And of course that was equipment that was either left somewhere or or was in Syria and well, taken from other people and they gathered it and they've been the, using it. Well the equipment that you're referring to was equipment that in fact was left by American forces while we were in Iraq, left for the Iraqi military right, right. and military police forces right. that when ISIS went in through northwestern Iraq they summarily just they ran. Uh, right. they, they, they ran and they basically commandeered yeah. all of this equipment. Right. Well, it's worth noting that ISIS' little terror campaign, while possibly not working with us, has worked locally. When the, when the well-armed Iraqi military decides to drop everything and, and leave, um, that's, that's evidence of success for that strategy. There's another subject here that I want to touch on, and, and we'll probably touch on after, after we go to break, but this issue of the militant in the video, uh, the militant that, is, that, that, that beheaded, for lack of a better term, James Foley, is British, a British national by most accounts. According to several sources that I've talked to, uh, they are close to identifying who this is, but I've also talked to several sources in London that are saying that the, the intelligence community in Great Britain, the MI5 internal, the MI6 external, as well as Theresa May, the Home Secretary in the Home Office in, in London, are extremely concerned that London, according to their intelligence reports, have just hundreds of British nationals, British passport holders, British natives, that are militant Islamic fighters for ISIS, that is a concern, as well as we just found out today, there was an American that was killed, a, guy, a, a gentleman, or, or I don't want to call him a gentleman, but a, an American named, of all things, Douglas MacArthur McCain, who had gone into Syria, 
and was killed by an airstrike by a, an American drone he attack. Was fighting for ISIS. He was yeah. fighting for ISIS. I, I saw a report that said that the Western folks uh, uh, who are in intelligence all over the world say that there are at least 2,000 Western yeah, seen similar uh, numbers. Uh, that have that have valid passports. That's the fear. That's it. That's the, the Western passports is the fear. We got to go to break. So we got to go to break. We'll come back. come into this country cool. legally, and we can we, we can if they start doing stuff like that. Who knows? There'll be a hell of a lot more trouble than than nine eleven. Hold on, hold on, Carl. Carl, one minute. But the British, what the British have done is they have canceled passports to many of those people who. They believe we're fighting in, in Iraq. Correct. Correct. And, and, and rightfully so. Right. A- absolutely rightfully so. If you know them. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, that, that, I, I can tell you right now, the people I've talked to uh, in London have all said that they're finding them. They're finding them in great numbers. And as they're finding them, they're putting them at the top of the must-get list. They're canceling their British passports, not allowing them to travel freely. They're now stateless individuals, which, you know, let them answer. Let them answer elsewhere. Uh, when we come back, we're going to continue talking about this, but we're going to talk about the bigger issue of can America, in fact, defeat ISIS and defeat Islamic militants, or is this not in the best interests of the U.S.? Chris, stay with us. We'll come to you after break. This is Backroom Politics live from Shelley's Backroom, thirteen thirty-one F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Back Room is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250 from cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelley's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Back Room, go to www.shelleysbackroom.com slash private dash party. Shelley's Back Room, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also the place for private parties.
here live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics, live on Blog Talk Radio. We're continuing our discussion on the current ISIS situation in the Middle East and the disturbing situations around uh, the, uh, the execution and beheading of American journalist James Foley. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about, uh, about the broader subject is one of the comments that we heard uh, out of the president is that we need to isolate ISIS. We've heard Republicans talking about we should defeat ISIS, and now there's a large-scale debate on what exactly is the right maneuver in this. Uh, Alan Moore, when we talk about defeating ISIS, we're basically looking at trying to come up with a plan to defeat uh, militant Islamic extremism. Is that even a reality that we could even remotely conceive as doable? It sort of depends on, on what their true objectives are uh, and how they carry out their plan. They have said they want to create a caliphate, a piece of real estate that they would control and dominate. Well, if, we, if, if they succeed in that, then we, if you will, know where they are. We know what they're trying to control. We can presumably have some ability to identify some of their capabilities. When they're moving around, it's really hard to find them. And when they're robbing banks and, and grabbing arms and constantly on the move, taking a village, a dam there, but then losing it, holding land, representing some part of some big piece of real estate is what defines governments in some ways, but it also uh, defines the, 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 the people in charge. As long as they're on the move, a ragtag group, no clear leadership structure, no central authority, it's really hard to wrap our arms around. I mean, these guys sort of emerged. But they, they, do, have a central, they do have a central leader. There's obviously well, a central control mechanism. You know, it took us a long time to find Osama bin Laden. And they, if, they, if they're hiding out in caves uh, someplace or in, in, a, in, in a, a big in mansion a, in, in a, a house Abbottabad. in, in uh, Pakistan, it's one thing. But if they actually have some large piece of real estate, this, this, this phrase, the Levant, the, the, which is really what they're about, the Levant crosses multiple borders. So they, they talk about the Islamic uh, State of Iraq, Iraq and, and Levant, Levant because it, it crosses some, some extra borders. I don't know where those borders are. I don't know the outlines of that. But, but it, it, if, if we're just trying to wrap our hands around this ephemeral group of guys who are attacking here, killing there, threatening here, adding foreigners, subtracting foreigners. It's really hard to know how to, to get after them, especially if we're not on the ground. Carl Tuvin. The only way that we're going to be able to solve this problem is by pulling together all the groups in the Middle East that are threatened by these people and their, their legions now, the Saudis, uh, uh, Jordan, uh, all the all the other parts of that, and to get together and really, really plan how to how to get rid of these folks. And I don't believe that giving them a piece of property 
is, is going to be a, a solution. Yes, we know where they are, but they will teach and project and build, and, and you will have people going all over the world um, doing things uh, and, and, uh, and, and, and I want Alan, Alan to respond real quick. Just let me clarify. I'm not saying we should. We need to give them some land, for God's sake. No, I'm saying no, no. If, but if they take land and then be, become centralized, trying to protect and hold that land, then we know where the targets are. Right. That I agree with. Denise Kraft. But there are so many targets. I mean, when they started talking about this concept of a of the land, I mean, that, you're going back to the 50s and the 60s with Muammar Gaddafi and the others. He tried. Didn't work. It didn't work because everybody in that region hates each other. So the one qualifying factor, even though they hate each other, is that they are forcing the Westerners out. So they are uniting even though they hate each other. And that, that's my concern. Is I'm not sure that we're going to be able to grab them because as long as they can prove success against the Western forces, they're going to attract additional followers. The only thing that will yeah. stop those followers is we cut off the money, we show that they're actually going to hurt their own people more than we are. Congressman Al? <clears throat> Excuse me. I, I, I was working on my coke here. <clears throat> I uh, was waving my fingers because everybody else at the table was waving their fingers. Oh, okay. There we go. Everybody else wanted to get into it. And, I, and, and he, he was waving his hardest, so call him. Dan Lipner. <laughs> So to, to Alan's point, I know it's, he's not advocating it, so let me be clear on that, that there is something to be said for if these guys do end up having territories, at a certain point you need to begin to govern. And lo and behold, with the democracy of ideas, when you actually have to govern and not just be a lunatic ranting and yelling at the trees, the boogeyman that is the West, lo and behold, the folks that are around you might suddenly discover that this, is, this ideology doesn't actually have a practical side on but the But Dan, Dan uh, let, me, let me just stop you right there. Is, is, there, are many, there are many scholars right now that are saying that they are governing, that there, in fact, is a governance protocol inside this organization. There are several that believe, I mean, you have regional leaders that could act as governors. You have local leaders that act as mayors. And you have a central authority Led by Al Baghdadi, right? Which is which is why I'm also which I would like to for those who would advocate that would respond in kind with saying the Taliban and Hamas, seemingly not the most competent actors in the world, both did manage to govern their their respective territories, maybe not well, but managed to maintain their governments. And this is waiting it out is not a good idea. One would one would argue that they're already doing that in the Levant right now, northwestern Iraq and northern eastern Syria. Bob Lines. Uh, let us assume that, you know, they have some sort of control over, over land where they're hit. They have to, you know, conquer the area. The fact of the matter is, if, if what uh, the uh, Secretary of Defense and the Joint Chief of Staff had said last week is going to happen, if we are going after them, where they are, bombing them, blowing them out of the water, we're doing everything we can to destroy their what, what their infrastructure, their military gathering, whatever there are, if we do that effectively, they're not going to be able to hold any territory, and they're going to be on the run if we do it. Now, I'm not sure we're going to do it. I want to go to our, our caller, Chris, who's been holding on the line. Chris, you're on with Backroom Politics. What are your thoughts? Um, my, my beliefs on this um, is the war on terror is 
the terrorism is not going to stop. Um, we'll kill one person, and we're going to have their family members. So it's gonna, for every every time you kill one or two people, you get ten more people that are going to despise America. I'm not an isolationist, but I do believe that we should stop policing the world, especially as we are bankrupt. We can't even afford to really fight a war, but if Congress declares a war, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 11, if they say we should go to war, or if, especially if somebody asks us for our help, then I think that it's right to help them out in that situation. But I don't think that we should just be out there constantly leaving our our um, people in our military in the way in harm's way uh, by sticking them overseas and constantly losing people seems like a daily basis. You hear in the news that we're losing our own people, and I think that we should go back to the ways. Um, before things became just constant, you know, war. Um, I mean, it, we've had wars throughout our history, but you know, we need to have go back to the Constitution, having Congress declare the wars, ending these wars, not having wars that drag on for over a decade. But um, very, very good. No, yeah. That's a very good. That's a very good point, Chris. We're going to put you back on mute. Uh, you can continue listening. Hold on, Alan Moore. You got a response to that. Oh no! Just just a, a, a reaction that that uh, you know it, there there are risks when we go in, and we're well aware of those. And mistakes may, are made. There are risks and mistakes when we pull out. Um, what what's happening right now um, is 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 as Bob talked about the, the comments from the Secretary of Defense um, uh, and and uh, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. He's left out. Secretary of State and the Attorney General, who also chimed in with very similar comments about the unusual nature of this risk. And where we are now is if there's a hundred or so Americans and a hundred, some number of hundreds of Western Europeans carrying their passports over there fighting, learning techniques, being emboldened, um, the fear now is that, that we've got Americans who are getting very bad ideas and learning very, very threatening lessons. Um, I don't want to just keep that. Who we believe will be coming home and bringing some of this stuff back to our shores. And Alan, I I just want to interrupt real quick and say it's not just Americans. The concern is that there are Canadians, which there are. Uh, As I I said before you interrupted, a hundred or so Americans and hundreds of other Westerners who pose threats to their homeland, to others where they can travel freely. Um, this thing is sort of metastasizing in ways that are truly problematic and scary. What, how, do we, how do we respond proportionally to that risk? We don't know. And as Carl said, we are, we're not a solo actor here. We're not going to go in by ourselves. We've got capabilities that others don't have, but we we need we. And Dan mentioned this too. You know, we're not very good at guessing what's going to go on thousands of miles away. Even the people in the nearby countries aren't so great, but they have the greater interest 
they are closer to the combat. There's a lot of people who are very, very troubled by what's going on, and we need a meeting of the minds and, and a joint strategy, but we can't ignore it simply because we hate war. Right. Congressman Al, I, I think that the administration <clears throat> and Congress are going to face uh, a little bit bigger problem than we are talking about here because I think they've got two problems. One is, what do you do with ISIS? What is the right approach? <clears throat> and that's very complicated, as I think we've made clear here. But the other question is, can you sell Americans on whatever you decide to do? Uh, and that could be uh, a very, very difficult thing. Yeah, I want a congressional oh. declaration on that. Oh, hold on, hold on. Denise Krupp, yes, Denise Krupp. It's difficult, it, it, but, right. When the war started back in 2001, we, the, uh, both House and Senate started holding hearings on the radicalization of Islam. So it was the radicalization there, but it was also talking about the radicalization that was occurring in the U.S. prisons. And what I would hope while we are talking about bomb, dropping bombs is why is all of a sudden we're seeing more and more Americans drawn to this? Why are we not stopping this? Why haven't we stopped this? I mean, we've been talking about the radicalization for 10 years. It started under Bush and it's now under Obama, why hasn't it stopped, and why is it making so many... Well, Denise, Denise, I just want to jump in and say, it's not fair to say that this started under Bush. There have been radical Islamists. I mean, you can go to certain parts of Brooklyn and Queens and see radical Islamic uh, uh, proponents back into the 70s. This so is not why, new. I, you're right, Justin. It's not new. And so why are we still fighting an old problem? And why are we seeing more and more people, Americans and Canadians and others, willing to do this? Oh, well, well, that also goes, well, two points on that. One, this goes to the, the, the Saudis pact with the devil when they actually started funding these groups to keep them quiet, and that actually allowed them to grow and allow their ideologies oh, to foster. Oh, you mean Saudis do so much for? I sense sarcasm there. Too. Um, but but the, but produce a lot of oil. But, that they all care about. Yeah, sadly. Yeah, that we are less dependent on thanks to President Obama. But that oh, being oh, said, oh, oh come on. Oh, you know what? I'll deal with that and tell me a story. No, 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 no. I'll deal with that and tell me a story. Let, 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 no, but let, 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 let me finish. Let me finish on that point. Oil man. We have no. Since the end of the Cold War, we have not been good at fighting the democracy of ideas. We have fight, we're fighting wars strictly with bullets. And lo and behold, as, as to Chris's point, uh, the, the caller, that by, by killing these radicals, we are, Donald Rumsfeld uh, pondered this when he was Secretary of Defense, said for each one that we kill, are we not creating two, three, five, ten more? So fighting that democracy of ideas is actually fighting it with ideas. We're, we haven't been so good at but doing it. But but, Dan, it then begs the question, what are the ideas? I mean, if you're talking about dealing with a Hydra-like situation in ISIS and Al-Qaeda, you know, if you cut off the head, two more will grow. Where is the ideas that we come to substantiate not having them become militant no, Islamists? The, the, the issue isn't the people who have already been radicalized. The issue is their recruitment of new people who have not yet become radicalized. Hold on. Carl Tubin. Go ahead. You know, the thing is that over the last 40, 50 years, and maybe before, there are groups that teach people to be nasty to other people. Um, <clears throat> some of this has happened in the, in the temple, 
in the Islamic temples in this country. Um, some of it, is, you know, in, in Saudi Arabia and other states um, across the across the way, they have taught their people to hate Islam, and they they teach them in the books. And these people grow up this way, and they become radical. I- I don't want to take away from the hate Israel side because no, no, we know no, that, that's, something, that, that's something we have to deal with. Right. But there's a, there's a difference. Israel has demonstrated, particularly with the situation in Gaza, that it can defend itself and defend itself well. We're talking about... I'm talking about uh, people who go to these churches and go to these uh, mosques. mosques and all of a sudden come out radicalized. It's all because of what they're hearing and learning and taking in, and then fine. But Denise Krepp, you know, we, we heard we heard Dan talk about <clears throat> a war of ideals, a war of, of of ideologies. Is there a way that we can help quell that radicalism that's being developed, not just over there, but now here and in other parts of the world? I mean, we haven't even talked about the Pacific Rim, where you have Tamil Tigers and other Islamic radical groups in, in the Pacific Rim, this is a global, global issue, and it seems to be fester more and more every year. Is there a way that we can fight this war with ideas instead of bullets? Well, yeah. It's one way is to make sure some of these folks have jobs. I mean, if you're asking me why somebody is going to be receptive to some of this information, if you don't have a job, but if you look at the number of folks that are going into this, they don't hold jobs. So if you give somebody a job, they're not going to be spending as much time in a temple and something like that. You know, we need to be talking about the underlying roots, and we haven't focused enough on that. Congressman Al. Not only that, but uh, an enormous number of uh, uh, proportion of our jail population are black. Uh, some uh, often associated with drugs. Uh, and I'm not talking about murderers and bank robbers and what have you, but uh, I think we have uh, managed to create uh, places where people will become embittered and will look for alternatives, and prisons are a perfect place in which to do that. I think a little prison reform might help this. I, 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 can see, I, I can see that, but I, I also don't want to paint with that big brush also, Congressman Al, because you know, I, as somebody who worked in a prison and saw – there were there there were convicts who actively converted to uh, to Islam, and it did them well. And it was not a, a a recruiting hole for Islamic militants. It's actually it was their way to become closer and to when, their God. When, when were you in this? This uh, we're going back into the into the early mid nineties. Yeah. Now, oh, oh, now we're talking. Okay, now we're talking today, and and I think it is a recruiting ground for these extremists. There's truth to that. There's truth I'm to that. Go ahead. I'm guessing it's both, um, and, and it would be hard for us on the outside to assess how much uh, of one, how much of the other. I wanted to comment though on this America's view of the world and other countries and how to bring them along, and the and the marketplace of ideas because. For the past, I mean, really since the Marshall Plan, our focus in the developing world, I mean, that was European focus, but then in the developing world, it was, hey, let's teach the the world about economic development, about international trade, about democratic systems. We tried that. We thought, wow, if everybody's interconnected, 
Um, we will then solve a great many problems. There was a phrase even of, of, of McDonald's allies. Everybody, every country that's got a bunch of McDonald's restaurants is going to see the world through sort of similar views and, and will be less likely to fight. Well, it turns out that we're wrong. It turns out that some of these not radicals, but ethnic-centered uh, histories and feelings are more powerful than the desire, or, or every bit as powerful for many people as a job, as, as, as improved uh, economics. And it drives people together and they become suspicious of the folks across the street, across the town, across the country, across the border. And we're having to rethink this, this, his, this, this uh, objective that has been so much part of U.S. foreign assistance and foreign policy that, that, uh, uh, that is not working. I do want to back up something that Denise said, because, you know, when, when we talk about, in, in talking with folks, not just here, uh, but particularly in Ottawa and in London, the, 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 common, the common thread that we've seen in the radicalization of Muslim extremists in Canada and in Great Britain, those are the two that I've got direct contact with, seems to be more economically driven. They resent the fact that they don't have a job, and because of that, they hang out with others that don't have jobs, and they say, you know what? We'll create our own job by fighting against the establishment, and, and they do that. However, that being said, this country has hundreds of thousands of people that are unemployed that continue to try and better themselves as opposed to take down a government. We see, we see a situation where when we talk about find them jobs, find them economic opportunities, find economic development, find international trade. The days of Japan and Germany creating Audis and Nissans and shipping to the U.S. and creating this huge economically viable power where hundreds of thousands of millions are employed by this mechanism doesn't exist in these, for lack of a better word, third world unindustrialized areas of the Middle East. It's not realistic. It may not be realistic, but they've got to figure out how to do it. But, we can't, but, how, but the, we can't have the Western world be the employer to everybody Look, else in the globe. We already are. Why are we? That, that's not true. We buy the goods. We're, we're buying the goods. But you know, the, the biggest problem, especially in some of these countries, is that their own population doesn't want to work in certain jobs. They are importing from other countries to do other work. And then you have an entire class of individuals who are citizens of these countries that aren't doing anything. And if you've got an entire class of 18 to 25-year-old men, and let's look at men, what do you think they're going to do? Bob Hines? Just to follow up on that, in Saudi Arabia alone, there are tens of thousands of young people who are out of school and don't have a job, period. And because, as Denise says, so many of the menial, menial jobs have been taken up by people who have come in from outside. And these folks just don't have anything else to do. Now, they're all Sunnis, and uh, that's, the, that's, the, that's their side of the religious case. And they are uh, probably, uh, some of them probably are enamored of this uh, ISIS looking like it's a powerful Sunni movement to 
teach people what the truth is about, you know, Allah and all that kind of stuff. And I suspect that there, that is a great recruiting ground because there are literally tens of thousands of young people who are out of work, don't have any jobs, have nothing to do, and don't have anything else to do except get in trouble. And a lot, it's a lot worse than, you know, mugging somebody in the back street when you get and you join ISIS. My, my, there, there's an anecdote that from, and it's not my own personal anecdote, but supposedly the, during the Great Depression, the mayor of New York reached out to FDR and said, you, you, you got it, public works projects, you got to get all these young unemployed white men out of New York City. Because he was terrified there were going to be labor riots from all, so they just needed to get them out doing something. Idle, idle hands being the, the devil's playground. And so there is something to that, suggesting that maybe that we can actually use our own history to whatever the job might be. There's no shortage of things to do in in the Middle East. There are but plenty how do you, of problems how do you to do that? How do you do that in in unindustrialized, undeveloped areas of northeastern Syria and northwestern Iraq? Well, you look at some of the governments that have been funding the guns and say, instead of funding guns, why don't we start funding water treatment facilities? Because we need water. It's also worth noting they don't make the guns. Well, they're not making the guns, but they're using the money to pay for them. So let's figure out how to reroute that money into things that are actually profitable for the country instead of destroying them. But I, I, I think I think you're living in a pipe dream, both of you. Well, what's the alternative? I, I, Justin, what's the alternative? I, 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 look, if I, if I knew the alternative, I'd be president. But the, the reality My is... My God, that's a scary thought. Uh, that scares a lot of people, trust me. Uh, Carl Tune, I'm going to give you the last word. Time for a break. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a presidential announcement here on Backroom Politics. As, no. you can, as you can see, his own close friends and, and friends around the table are not... On his team. Exactly. <laughs> Part of the problem is culture. And the culture in the Middle East is a lot different than the Western world. And a lot of, not all of these people work. Uh, um, they sit around, they, they pray, they do all kinds of other things, but they don't work. And, you know, to go in and try to put a whole set of new situations, oh, we have this plant here. You, we can teach you how to work this thing. It, it is, and that's what some of them. And that's, that's one, of the, one of the problems that you have over there. Very true, very true. And, and obviously this is something that we're going to be keeping an eye on. This is not going away anytime soon, and it's something that we'll continue to discuss here around the table here at Backroom Politics. With that, it's time for our break. Uh, when we come back for our second hour, we're going to open up. Uh, we need to talk about uh, the administration, and namely President Obama, uh, his actions during this time of the ISIS crisis has been uh, come, has come under fire, for lack of a better term. Uh, he's been called detached. He's been called disconnected. And we're going to take a look at it. Is that fair or is that just politics as usual here in Washington? This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital. Washington, D.C. will be back in four minutes. Stay with us. You know, here on Backroom Politics, you hear us order drinks uh, during happy hour, the second hour of Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. But what you don't understand is the quality of the drink that we're getting here at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Backroom Politics premier sponsor, hey, 
you got Dave Hammerly and the bar crew there at Shelly's Back Room that really know how to pour a drink. Whether it's something simple like my on-air Jack Daniels on the rocks with a splash of water, or whether it's something elaborate like what has to be the best martini in the District of Columbia for Congressman Al Swift. Wine selection, scotch selection that will blow your mind. They've got Highland scotches. They've got Isla Sky scotches, blended, single malt, anything you want. Port wines to go with that great cigar from the great humidor. Down here at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Come on down, have a drink, and make some new friends. Or heck, just come on down and listen to Backroom Politics on Tuesdays. And we're back here live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics live on Blog Talk Radio. Uh, we're going to uh, change gears a little bit and, and look towards the domestic front on how this is going around. Um, the president 
So we're live on the air again, Al. Just give you a heads up. We're live radio show. You're mumbling to yourself, and we're live. What, what program is this? <laughs> it's the Lone Ranger. Remember that? Fiorello LaGuardia reading comics. How's Tonto doing? Exactly. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit in, in, about the domestic front on this situation. Uh, President Obama last week, uh, when when uh, the tragic events surrounding um, uh, American, um, American journalist James Foley occurred, uh, when the president announced his reaction to the beheading of James Foley, uh, he showed very somber, very solemn, uh, showed deep concern, and then 30 minutes later was out in a golf course in Edgartown, Martha's Vineyard, Massachusetts, smiling and getting giddy with his his other part of the uh, presidential foursome there. Uh, at the same time, at the uh, at, at the memorial service for James Foley, not a single representative of the U.S. government was dispatched to attend on behalf of the president, let alone the president himself. At the same time, there's been mounting criticism for the death of a two-star general in Afghanistan during his funeral service at Arlington National Cemetery. No official from the American government attended the service for our fallen warrior. This now has started up a whole new argument and whole new discussion of is President Obama out of touch with reality, or is this just bad political fighting? Dan, I know where you're going with this. I'm going to let you have the second word. Oh, no, go ahead, no, go ahead, Dan. No, I'm, I, I'm just going to start with a question. I mean, I've actually, I was actually in the White House for a couple of funerals, and as this is during the Clinton years, not the Obama years, let me be clear, uh, that the rule tends to be whether or not somebody's invited, big-footing a... a, a politicizing a funeral is something that is generally not done. So unless anyone here can speak to whether or not the, the, the government or the White House was, was invited to send a representative to the funeral. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. It, traditionally, in every executive government office I've ever dealt with, whether it's a, a mayor, a governor's mansion, or the White House, it is they reach out to the family and say, look, we'd like to have somebody there to show our respects you know, is there anything we can do? Sometimes the family says sometimes, no. No, sometimes the family says no, but it, it, it's still a perception issue that the Obama admission, and again, I go back to the question. I'm not making judgment here. I'm just saying, is this, in fact, a bad political ploy by the Republicans to take another shot at Obama, or is this, in fact, real? At least start with Alan Moore first, and then I'll go to Denise Krupp. Well, there's a couple of issues here. I I I, I agree with, with Dan that, that there are protocols. The president or one of the top people can't go to every to every funeral that comes along. If if a very senior person were to go to a two-star general and nobody goes to to a foot soldier funeral, that becomes its own problem. The the funeral thing I think has a, has its own life and its own protocols. I think what happened that 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 I that I can't myself understand with the president is a few days after he gave a speech about how we were going to bomb some ISIS targets. Within 10 minutes, he was on the golf course, took some grief. It was, it was the kind of thing that was that the grief, I think, was a little overblown, was overblown in that case. But what I can't figure out is, given the reaction to that, how 
a few days later, in responding appropriately to this grotesque execution of this journalist and a focus on the families and what went on, that he then immediately pivoted and was back out on the golf course. And it was, it was so tone deaf. He's not out of touch. He's totally in touch. What I don't get is why none of the people around him said, Mr. President, wait, 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 wait. You just did this highly emotional, heavily charged, horrible thing. You really probably shouldn't be out with Alonzo Mourning, the former, the retired NBA star and golfing buddy, and a couple of others. Take two hours. Take take a day. Take a day. Play the back nine. If if the if the if the Secret Service is all set up and you can't just totally disrupt the golf course day after day after day, and the and the tea time starts and you don't want everybody to be furious with you. Let the other three start playing. Join them two hours in. There are different things. It just looked bad, and it prompted the Daily News to put a picture on their front page of him playing golf here and the grieving parents right next to it. It was an avoidable mistake, and I don't understand why no one around him had the ability to say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. Denise Crap. I guess I'm going to go back to George Bush and the cutting of all the brush. I mean, he did a lot of brush cutting in Texas, and I'm willing to bet that he did it because it was a stress reliever, because nobody talked to him while it was happening. They, nobody probably said, Mr. President, and said he could take a hatchet to the brush and go, whatever he was probably saying to himself, mental break, that was probably what that was. So I, I'm guessing that golf is probably a mental break for, for President Obama. Should he have done it two hours afterwards? Probably not, but when we are looking at ten a man, minutes, okay. But if Helen, but if we're looking at somebody who's got to who's got to govern this country, we can't expect them to be on twenty four seven. You have to take a break, Definitely. and I want to see somebody take a mental break instead of somebody doing something stupid. Bob Hines, the president. You know, everywhere the president goes, the president, the presidency goes with him. He's got everything he needs to stay on top of things. That's not a question. But I think it is, it's an optics question for the president. Uh, he, he deserves a vacation. He, he deserves a break in again. But I do agree with those who say that it, was a, it would have been better had he not been on the golf course 10 minutes after a serious question, you know, serious remarks. There's just a matter of, of the way to do it. Uh, and it's, it's and, and I, I, I absolutely believe that you know with that job you've got to have some R and R time. And he deserves it. He works hard at it. You have to. But it wasn't the best way to do it. And someone, uh, he's, he needs people around him who are professionals at knowing how to do these things. And he obviously doesn't have it. He's got a bunch of friends from Chicago, and it ain't helping him at all. Carl Tubin, then Dan Lipner. Yeah, the problem is, suppose he had gone back to, to where they're staying, and he decided to take the girls into, into one of the little towns. Well, the press would have covered him. They would have seen him walking down the street. He would probably follicling with his daughters, smiling, laughing. Then he would have been criticized for that. 
Or if he decided to go on a, on a sailboat or something. Every president since Reagan has had this exact same problem. And I, I mean, I can point to, uh, I mean, W once made a statement right after a bombing in, in I, I believe it was Iraq, while he was literally about to tee off, made this heart, heartfelt statement of, of regret and remorse for those who died, and then followed up two seconds later with, now watch me hit this ball. And so this kind of thing is every president is going to have to deal with. The only choice, it, realistic choice, is to shut out the press, and then they scream bloody murder for that. Congressman Al, I remember the hoorah and criticism that landed on George Bush when he was reading a book of children's stories to a group of children, and an aide came in and told him that they'd had the... the 9-11. 9-11. And he just kind of sat there. And there was a lot of criticism for that. And I remember thinking at the time, and I, you all know I'm no friend of George Bush, but <clears throat> what would you do? I mean, you're, you're there with a bunch of kids. You don't want to scare the kids. You can't really have a conversation with anybody to amplify it. And if he looked a little bit dazed... He was just told that the worst attack on our homeland just occurred minutes that would, before. That would be legitimate dating. And, and the criticism of him was totally unfair given the circumstances. Uh, <laughs> or, no, no, no. First, Alan, more than, than Carl Tuvin. So, so Al is absolutely right about, about that first incident. It was something unprecedented, unknown, surprising. We don't know exactly what the message was. Um, and and he reacted pretty darn soon thereafter. Um, the, the 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 George Bush incident was a was a serious stupid move and an embarrassment for him. And he never played golf thereafter as president as president for the next eight years. Now what we have in this case is not a surprise, but a tea time. And we have the subject of golf, which is a rich person's sport that most people don't relate to. What the president, he, he, he was, gave a perfectly appropriate speech. All he needed to do was disappear for a few hours and then return to his vacation. It's this juxtaposition of the very, very serious with what appears to be frivolous. Yes, absolutely. It's a mind clear. Some of us play golf. We find that it that it provides that 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 release. Most people don't play golf. They don't understand golf. They see it as a rich guy's thing, with you know guys being buddies. And if you had to play, then get rid of the press. They they take so much grief for for lack of transparency. Anyway, I cannot understand, and that's why it's sort of this. This this disconnect. How can you how can you be smart here and stupid there when it's an avoidable mistake? It's a self-inflicted wound. Dan Lipner. Well, this is the for. I think it's safe to say we can all agree that Obama has not gone a week as president without some serious criticism. And at this point in the presidency, we're almost six years into it now. Um, there should be some calluses that can form over time. 
that I'm going to be criticized if I do, I'm going to be criticized if I don't, at a certain point, it gets shut out. And within the inner circle, including the, and I'm going to take a little umbrage saying these aren't, these aren't communications professionals around the president, that even then, there, there is a certain point saying there is, a, there is no win here, so let's just take the, take the communications loss, but, for lack of a better but phrase. But Dan, Dan, let me just interrupt that real quick. Is when There's a certain expectation, because I, I am the first one to say, if you criticize the president for taking a vacation, that's just a dumb political pot shot. That's Bush League, because even those on my party, take vacations. We brought up Reagan. We brought up 41 at Kenny Bunkport. We brought up 43 in Texas. We brought up Bill Clinton also in Martha's Vineyard. Uh, you know, I have no problem with the president, uh, in, you know, having a vacation with his family, personal time that is well needed, and I will even say well-deserved. He is the president. However, in when you look at you are still the commander-in-chief. You are still the chief executive. There is a certain inherent image that you have to – if he had gone back to the House and held tight, read a book, thought his way through his next steps, and then come out two hours later, I would have been, you know what, that's fine. He's either briefed or something like that. I just cannot allow the president to say, hey, you know what, no. hey, Alonzo, no. what's up, my brother? It, 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 it's not a good image. Uh, uh, Congressman Al. Go, go ahead. No, no. Dan so so I, I was actually in the White House when Ron Brown's plane crashed. And Bill Clinton went to Andrews to welcome back the casket. And mind you, Ron Brown was his close friend. He, he well, on the tarmac and the, the, the military band was playing, welcoming them back. Bill Clinton had the temerity of actually smiling and seemingly sharing a joke uh, with somebody likely about the folks returning and saying, you know, having a happy memory. And he was criticized for not showing remorse at that second. So there really is a no-win situation absent just looking remorseful for the cameras. And if that's really what How about staying out of the cameras, Dan? How about if you, if, if you are... A chief of There's no criticism the for staying out of the cameras as no, well. No, 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 no. Alan Moore. We're not talking about. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Alan Moore, then Carl Tubin. You know, I mean, I think these are false comparisons. And every now and then, you guys, it's okay if you don't defend something stupid that the president does. I'm not blaming his staff. We don't know what his staff said. But they thought, my hunch is, they said, we've got this tea time, the Secret Service is in place, we really need to get over there. And that's why I said, let the other guys start. Most rounds of golf have a hole. Obama was you can at play the correspondence nine. dinner when the raid to take out uh, Osama bin Laden. Occurred. It was also a top secret was, special was, operation. He didn't want to be a no-show. He could have. Come on. When you got a Marine Dowd column, You've got Jim Manley, a guy who used to work for Harry Reid, our favorite, who's in the tank for Democrats more than you can ever find just about anybody, saying, yeah, the president blew this one. Come on, you guys. You can acknowledge that this was a stupid, avoidable mistake. Congressman Al. And that's what I was going to say. Look, <clears throat> let's, 
let's us Democrats stop trying to say that this didn't appear a little insensitive. It did. But trying to make a, a death penalty case out of this is ridiculous. No, no, that I agree with. I, no, no, I will agree with you on that. No, no, no. We are. We might not agree. We're suggesting nobody is. Well, that's because we're pushing back on this garbage that the, the garbage? garbage comparisons that come up. Oh. Just acknowledge that it was a stupid, avoidable mistake, and we but, can move but, on. But this brings, but this also, but this also brings up a larger issue that Congressman Al, with all due respect, that this president has been fighting for six and a half years. It what is seems, that? It, it is that he is surrounded by political amateurs, that he is over-cerebralized, making up my own word, his, the presidency, and is not the strategic operative that one would expect to see as... Justin, so, you're digging a big hole for yourself. Oh my you're God, you're God. making this no, into no, a, me, something that's not, that, that, as Al was accusing it, us of. It, yeah. It, 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 okay, look, I, I'm going to go back to what Dan said. It's been six years. There are a lot of calluses. Was this the smartest move on his part? Absolutely not. No. But you know what? It's not something that he's probably going to repeat again, that's for sure. And it's also something we have to realize that it's been six years of nothing but a pounding. And I'm, I'm willing to bet some of his folks are probably like, I'm done. I'm tired. I, I mean, so well, there's, there's probably it, truth to that. Yeah. I mean, it's been six years, and it's only going to get worse. We're now entering silly season. It's late August. We've got an election coming up in November. You think this is going to be pretty over the next two and a half months? No, it's going to be nasty, dirty, and playwright ugly. No. So this is just what the nice stuff looks like. Get ready for the next. Carl Tuvin. And now you've got the Tea Party going from state to state on a, on a whole impeachment thing. First of all, okay. First of all, let's get that out of the way. If you want to, let's get. Let's, okay. Wow, I don't even know how that came up, Carl. I don't even know where that came up from, Carl. That that was amazing. It came up because you're talking about how rough it's going to get, and it's going to get. Thank God the Tea Party hasn't won anything. Thank God, but they're still out there. Thank God. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on. Let me get control. I'm gonna let me let me get control of this again. Let me get control again. Yeah. Yeah, why start now? I want to try and get control of this back. The, the reality is, first of all, Carl, let, 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 me, let me put this to red. Okay, there is not a Republican member that is aligned with the party establishment that has called for an impeachment. We're not going to impeach Barack Obama. Yeah. I, we're not going to impeach, short of him doing something completely. Completely idiotic. Maybe we should impeach the people who are talking about impeaching hey, that's right. I don't want. I don't want him impeached. I don't want him impeached. Let him, go forward. Let him finish his term. He's, he's only being sued right now as to placate the Tea Party folks. But that's so neither here nor there. That's neither here nor there. But I, I do want to go back to the fact that, you know, and again, each president has his own style of governing. Obama has had his. It is not the operational presidency that we would hope to see. It's more of a thinking uh, part of academic. It's more academic than it is operational. And, and, and in this instance, I think it became a problem. Well, and, and this I will concede. That, and and I, I have frequently joked that we have the professor-in-chief in the White House. And, and a, a fair criticism is President Obama has, has, does not have a – 
is not done a good job of representing the nation's voice, of its outrage, of its pain, of its sorrow. And I, I can, and this is to Denise's point, I can see where that may have come from. After maybe trying, extending an olive branch and having it smacked down multiple times, that but, at a certain point, you're just going to go back to who you are yeah, naturally. But here, here's, here's the problem I have with that statement, though, Dan, is I saw President Obama in Arizona after the attempt on Gabby Gifford's life and the shooting in Tucson. That, to me, was a glowing moment. He looked more presidential there in that instance than we'd seen him in a long time. When he made the announcement that we had gotten bin Laden, he looked presidential, not academic. He didn't look like he was giving a lecture. He looked presidential. This president has the capability. I think he's got the people hopefully around him that can help him guide him that way, but it seems lost more times than not. No, but that's also one of those moments, and it's the hardest thing, and this is like, in, in politics to get, especially at the national level, to get national consensus on an idea. The, the killing of bin Laden was almost universally seen as a good thing in this country. We, we had almost spontaneous rallies. I don't think it's almost. Spontaneous rallies in multiple parts of the country celebrating the fact that this incredible wrong to us had been righted. The president's line was justice has been done. But we and have other instances of justice no, where no, we're... No, but, but getting that kind of unity on an idea, on a moment, is almost impossible. This is a big, complicated, complex country. And suggest that you can get that kind of unity of moment, of purpose, of ideas for a country of 340 million people is is a rare thing and for the bin laden thing for the bin laden uh killing absolutely he rose to the moment it represented our country what about tucson what about tucson in tucson also a, a a member of congress representing us representing our democratic ideal saying that this is an attack not just on gabby gifford but an attack on our country on how we want to govern ourselves but then step away from that Let's go to what happened at, in Sandy Hook, where we seem to have a national idea that this tragedy was so horrific. We could all unify. And by the way, another moment where President Obama looked presidential. But that also fractured almost instantly, as far as how the various different interests and how that was going to be handled. Those moments are rare. And a president taking those moments correctly and handling it well is an important thing. But seeing those moments where they aren't is perilous. And these other moments that we're talking about just aren't quite the same. I, I, just, I, I just think, and I'm going to go John McLaughlin here, Correct answer You've been is John McLaughlin. All this program for crying out loud. I, well, maybe just a little bit, but I will say that I will say this. Look, I'm by no means the biggest fan of Obama as president. He is our president. He is our elected chief executive. Respect for him. I have respect for the office. I will tell you right now, though, there is an expectation that I have that in a situation like this, where you have within six days of each other. The killing, the mass killing, the genocide of Christians in Iraq on a mountaintop, 
and you have another situation where an American is summarily executed by a native of one of our ally nations in, in an Islamic jihadist rage, that that is when we are really, really looking for him to be presidential and not look like Tiger Woods. Bottom line. Justin, this is something that happened and on which there will be comment. I think probably worthy of about five minutes of this program. We have spent a half an hour on it. It is blowing it totally out of proportion. Uh, there, is, there is some question about whether the president has got a good sense of the, the PR aspect of the presidency. But say it, you know, and drop it. I mean, what are you going to do about it? What's all this talk? Hopefully he'll hear it and make some changes. Sure, he's going to be listening to our program. You never know. I'm sure he's there right now. For which he should be criticized. He should not be listening to our program. He should be out doing important presidential things. I think he calls in. I think he downloads the show onto his iPod and listens to it on the golf course. No, no, no. no, no. No. This afternoon he's he's on Air Force One coming back from North Carolina. And he was listening to last week's show. And they listened and he 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 went off the computer and all of a sudden this show popped up. Well, you know what? Time for a break. It's uh, bottom of the hour. We're going to take a break. When we come back. We're going to touch on, speaking of craziness, we're going to talk on crazy season. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about how insane some of these campaigns are getting, i.e., uh, the Republican candidate for Senate against the incumbent Mark Udall put out a campaign ad in which he had pictures of the Islamic militant who beheaded uh, uh, the uh, American journalist James Foley. So when we come back, we'll talk about that. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. 30 minutes. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends. Or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Backroom is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment... Shelly's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelly's Backroom, go to www.shelly'sbackroom.com slash private-party. Shelly's Back Room, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also a place for private parties.
And we're back here live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 Up Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Back Room Politics on Blog Talk Radio and our last segment for this week. We're going to take a little bit of a shift and talk about the campaigning coming into the midterms. And it's, it's an obvious segue since we've been dealing a lot with the ISIS question, the PR effects on the president, but also the PR effects on the campaigns that are going on. Uh, I bring this up because uh, this week, uh, Republican Senate candidate uh, in New Mexico, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, uh, Alan Way, Alan Way's campaign put out a political ad against Tom Udall, not for Alan Way, but against Tom Udall. And in the video, it shows the assailant on James Foley as not once, but at least three times during, during this ad. Uh, it has created a storm inside New Mexico and inside the Beltway as this has gone too far. Uh, you don't needed that. Well, Al, uh, yeah, probably. But Alan, Alan Way obviously took a swing for the fence, and it looks like it's going to backfire on him, at least from what I've heard from some GOP sources. The GOP is not totally thrilled with this situation. But it does bring up a question is, you know, it, you know, it almost says, is it too soon? But Denise Kreb, when we look at it and we say, you know, he's making a point, Tom Udall has been, uh, a longtime supporter and a longtime voting in line with uh, President Obama. Uh, and the, they're just demonstrating what happens when you go with President Obama and not vote Republican. I think it's distasteful. I think that, that the ad should be removed. I agree with you. I, I mean, you don't benefit from somebody else's death. Period. There's no comma. There's no discussion. You don't benefit from somebody else dying. Story. But Alan Moore was it in fact benefiting? Was it, did anybody benefit by having that that ad out there? Not that I can see. Maybe Tom Udall, yeah. um, because but that's it, inadvertent. That's not his. No, that's exactly. not his fault. That's, but that's exactly the point. And I think it, it's the kind of thing that backfires. You, you know, when you're when, when you're when you're dealing with a human tragedy, if it's really fresh. It's really hard from a political standpoint to make something useful of it. Even when it's older, it's not like it's easy. And, and, and I wouldn't begin to, to understand or try to, to outline the times where it, where it conceivably could help you. I guess I'm not willing to say it could never help you. But it's, this is just stupid and desperate. Um, it, would, it would be like somebody trying to utilize the, 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 the tragedy of Ferguson to, for, for a major political ad. Does that mean there will never be a political ad about that that somebody might benefit from? I have no idea. But when the stuff is really fresh and really, really uh, difficult and unpleasant and we don't have all the answers, just leave it alone. Agreed. Bob Hines. It's amateur hours sometimes. People make mistakes. Uh, the most dangerous thing in the world is when there's tragedies around. It's to jump into it. It's a stupid thing to do. We should have kept this mouth shut. Congressman Al, Lingo to you. You know, as an eight-term member of Congress, you you've run your share of campaigns as well as been the candidate in these campaigns. Yeah. Uh, you know, what's the mindset that 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 says that this could possibly be a good idea 
I mean, the candidate's got to sign off on the release of this act. Inexperience. Yeah. Dan Littner? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, Congressman. Just anybody who's run a campaign for somebody running for county commissioner should know better than doing something like that. Don't no. That's, Don't yeah. Hold on. Dan Lipner, you just came off a campaign. I, I, I just came off a campaign and seeing decision-making that occurred. Let me be clear. I agree. This out is a bad idea. However, the mindset on the ground is different. So the rapid response, trying to get out there ahead, especially if Udall is not going anywhere. Um, so if you're fighting a losing campaign, you're looking for whatever hook you can find. And in this case, they're hoping, and they saw the buzz, and this is the echo chamber within the right wing, that suggested that the friend saying, oh, yeah, going after Obama, this will be the thing. So I know how this occurred. And saying amateur hour, when you throw your life into something, it, it can lead to bad decisions. But you need, you need, Congressman Al, you need some, some, experienced people to tell you not to do that. I remember a candidate running for re-election for the state legislature, and he and his campaign manager come up with this brilliant new slogan, buy a piece of Dan Van Dyke. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And another guy and I said, no, and they didn't do it. But just amazing what uh, people who uh, who are are they care enough to be involved. They're in the political system. They're all of that. But like everything else, you need some experience. Denise crap. You do need some experience. I mean, I'm married to a candidate right now, and you need somebody in the echo chamber, which I fully understand to say. No, that is the truly dumbest idea I've ever heard. And you need that to be said to you, because if you don't, then God help us if you're elected. Because you're really going to do some dumb things. Carl Tuvin? Denise, those, those words rolled off your tongue very smoothly. <laughs> they did, didn't they? Carl Tuvin. There was a situation in 1976 when I was helping Paul Sarban rebound against the Joe Tides in the primary. And I got a call about 10 days before the election, and they said that uh, we want you to go to New York with Paul to raise money in the Greek community. We have a fundraiser, we have a nightclub, blah, 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 blah. I said, I'm not going, and he shouldn't go. So the chief of said, so why? I said, because if, if I go with Paul Sarbanes and somebody in the Baltimore press calls the campaign, and says, where's your candidate? And somebody slips and says, oh, he's in New York. With, uh, at a Greek nightclub in Astoria. Raising money. And uh, so they said, oh, my God, you two kids, you've got to go with them. So I said, you tell him. He shouldn't go. I'm not going with him. If he goes, period. And uh, called me back about a half hour later. Would you go with Christine? I said, yes. I would go, I'd go, to, I would go with Christine. Christine, Christine was, is his, his, wife. his wife. But he should be in Baltimore or someplace in Maryland campaigning. Dan Lipner. <laughs> Sometimes political stunts work. Listen, <laughs> I mean, this is not one of those great highlights in American history. I, in my pocket, I have a, a, a list of known communists that are in all parts of this government. <laughs> and an, a, until, an, until 
those moments go awry, they occasionally do work. So and you, you can't... know who took him down? It was the Department of Defense. So I'm not going to say that's a good stunt. But it didn't work right away. How long did that last before it went down? He tortured Way a lot of people. That's and people the lost point. their lives and their jobs. It was, a, it was yeah. a senator from Vermont that started the process of, of bringing him down. Yeah, no, I agree with that. But it, but it, it, it does go back, when we talk about the experiences, especially on these campaigns, it, being being somebody who ran a campaign in 2012, and that was, and I swore, and it still holds true, I will never do another campaign again. There are, there are, is there is a huge influx of young, inexperienced people that are coming in and really coming up with these ideas, and some of them are senior leaders on these campaigns. Some of them are campaign well, managers, and some of them are, are policy directors for these campaigns. Well, and that's, and that's the catch. When, when you look at American politics, and if you, especially on the House side uh, on the Hill, it looks like romper room. I mean, you have a bunch of kids who are out there doing this. Stuff. It's very hard work. It's very hard work. You're not working 40-hour work weeks. You're not working in the best of conditions. You're 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 putting it yourself out there, both in the in the hopes of winning, but also because you actually believe in something. And sometimes that hopes of winning and the, those personal beliefs, those interests sometimes clash. Yes, Congressman Al, I, I agree with that. <clears throat> but it seems to me that that any campaign should have an old graybeard around somewhere. Not terribly active in all the things, but somebody that you run ideas past who's had the experience in it and can say, that'll work, that'll work. Sometimes. They're not always correct, but they have a better chance of being correct than a virgin. Oh, Carl Tubin. Yeah. <laughs> Did he just say yeah, correct yeah, than a virgin? It's a coin phrase. That's even better, Carl Thuvin. Talk about young people coming in. When Chuck Manette was the executive director of the Young Democratic of a college of Democrats, we were in the office. People were coming in, and these people came in from Wisconsin, and they were bragging about the great things they had done in, in the campaign to undercut the Republicans. So we said, "Well, what did you do?" Oh, we walked into uh, their campaign headquarters. We took a bunch of their their uh, uh, literature and we put it down the store. And you know, Chuck and I looked at each other. You know, but you've got stupid people here. You had stupid people 30, 40 years ago. And well, stupid people no, no, in no. Bellingham yeah. did exactly the same. To respond to that, there are two, uh, two stories. One is the how Carl Rove made his name. And I don't remember the exact race, but apparently he, he infiltrated the opposing campaign as an intern, stole some letterhead, and then proceeded to invite uh, the local homeless shelter to the opposing candidate's uh, office opening on the official campaign letterhead, completely destroyed a photo op. So this is one of those moments that it, it, it arguably started Carl Rove down his road. Call that a tricky dick. Moment. <laughs> now, now, as far as far as the old, I, I, I won't name the name here, but in 2004, when uh, Kerry was running for president, I was I worked on Kerry's campaign. I was in a select group of the leadership teams for that were getting ready to get sent out to the states. I ended up in Pennsylvania, but we saw a preview of some of, some of the ads that were prepared for Kerry, and part of the team, the the communications team, which I was not a part of, uh, saying that well. 
in this case, you know, we didn't we never had a, a picture of uh, Michael Dukakis coming out of the bush carrying an M16 like we do of John Kerry, and then previewed one of the ads and said in, in a very joking fashion. So much so that I actually took offense. I, I know enough Vietnam veterans talk about the work they had done as a casual political stunt, and also considering that uh, uh, now Secretary Kerry still wakes up in cold sweats from the from his time in Vietnam. But those moments that the old graybeards and seemingly understanding the political dynamics from just a political point of view and misunderstanding what normal people might view something as is not just possible, it's likely. Political types, we are not normal people. (laughs) (laughs) But but we don't want any old ones. We don't want any old ones. Anybody over the age of 35, please. No. The, the, the best piece of political advice I got as a young political operative was making sure to keep in mind that the fact that we talk politics and we're doing it for two hours a week on this show, that is more than the average American does in a month. The idea that we lifetime. spend the time, yeah, lifetime, I would agree. Talking, about, talking about these issues and looking at it from a particular perspective, normal people have lives to live, right. and they are working hard. And those who don't, those who don't moderate radio shows. I don't know about you, Alan, but I'm doing this show for the money. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> last statement, Congressman. Clear that, 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 that old, experienced politicians make mistakes too, exactly. like joining so. this show. Yes. Uh, And so I'm not saying that that's the magic bullet. It's just having, I I wish, for example, the Washington Post had some former member of Congress who would simply read their cut lines and get the right name under the right picture. Good point. Good point. Well, with that, uh, by the way, I go around the table. Was the Allen Way at a Stupid thing, Congressman Al. It was a mistake. Bob Vines? Yes. Alan Moore? Stupid. Denise Dumb. Krupp? Dumb. Carl Tubin? Outrageous and stupid. Dan Lipner? A mistake that's going to have national legs. It's going to give Obama some, some cover. The correct answer here is that this was incredibly dumb. Uh, with that, we're going to go to our favorite segment. This is Tell Me a Story, where we talk about buzz, innuendo, and some of the topics we didn't catch on this show. I'm going to go around the table. We're going to play a little bit of roulette today, and I'm going to start with Denise Kreft. Denise Kreft, tell me a story real quick. The American Legion September 2014 issue contained a very interesting article about the VA and California. Apparently, back in 1890s, I'm going to go a little old, there was a senator who gave some property specifically for the purpose of, uh, for use of veterans. That's fine. Now we're in 2014. That property is now being used as a UCLA baseball stadium for stores and for storage equipment. Now there's a lawsuit. This is not the first time that the VA has been misusing property, and I think there's going to be more to come. Because as long as we have homeless veterans and there's a baseball stadium on their land, there's going to be questions that are going to be asked. Interesting. Good point. Carl Tuvin, tell me a story. Well, I don't know which one. There's two. Yet one. Oh, <laughs> um, Tell us both and we'll vote. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. 
Tyrant, no. You get one. Quick. You're losing time. When Ronald Reagan was president, he was out in his ranch in California. And he was on a... Most of the time, I think. Let him go. He was on his horse, and the horse was bending over, and Reagan was bending over with the horse. And the press looked at that and said, my guy must be sick. So it must, something must be wrong. So they called Mom Fitzwater, who was in this motel, taking a nap. He got up, and he called the Secret Service and said, please give a phone to the president. And uh, <clears throat> Reagan gets on the phone and says, what's up? And uh, Fitzwater said, you know, I've been told that you're leaning over in front of your horse, and that they think that something's wrong with you. <clears throat> and Reagan, Reagan said to him, don't they know that when the horse takes a leak, he bends his head way down over? <laughs> That's your story? You're cut off. You're cut off. You're cut off. You're cut off. And Fitzwater said, what am I supposed to tell the press? And, and, and uh, Reagan said, don't tell him anything. Yeah, you're done. That's it. Alan Moore, tell me a story. <laughs> there's, a, that one, baby. there's a story getting lots of attention, not only in Washington, but around the country. The trial of uh, the, the former governor of Virginia, uh, Bob, Bob McDonald. He has, he has uh, with, his, with his wife, who's also being tried at the same time, she's at a separate table with her own lawyers, Basically, they've taken a strategy that's giving a lot of attention and some controversy that basically of throwing the wife under the bus, and he's being criticized for that. What, what, uh, what intrigues uh, a lot of observers, though, is that it's the whole set of facts and circumstances is so idiotic and potentially embarrassing and, and bizarre and explainable that there's this plausible story that probably has some truth to it, that both Maureen McDonald, his wife, and the former governor, Bob McDonald, have bought into. Their lawyers are all going down the same track. So when it's not so much that he's throwing her under the bus. They're both throwing her under the bus. We don't know what the outcome will be. We don't know how to assess what's going on inside the minds of the jurors. But uh, this is a major dice roll going to trial. He could have copped a plea that probably would have presented, prevented him from practicing law in the future. So this is his best chance to continue working and pay the alimony they're, that he, he faces in the future. That's right. They're both going to. No, but he can't afford it. That's part of the problem. That's right. They're both broke, like the Clinton. <laughs> Bob Hines, tell me a story. Uh, this primary season is over now. And uh, the best thing that has happened to the Republican Party in a long time is that all the Tea Party people who have been running have been defeated. That's one of the best things that can possibly happen for the Republican Party, but for the country, because the Tea Party people are about as useful as tits on a board. <laughs> Family show. Family show, Bob. Family show. <laughs> John Dingle used to say, side pockets on a cow. <laughs> Again, family show. Congressman Al, tell me a story. I, I had a story, and that blew it right out of my mind. Dan Lindner, tell me a story. Uh, 
Rand Paul, and uh, who uh, would, right when he emerged, I said was an interesting political figure, and I was mocked for that. And while I'm not a Rand Paul supporter, he has actually done some a little bit of political interesting positioning, yeah. positioning himself to the left of Hillary Clinton, calling her a warmonger, saying if she's elected president, she's going to get us into another war. This creates another war. Another war. How many can we have? We got but two or three going the, on right the, now. The, the big question is whether or not the Republican establishment, how they're going to deal with that. So the, Rand Paul is worth watching for his pending presidential. By the way, did, did you see did you see him uh, down in Central America operating yeah, on the eyes yeah, of children? Yeah. I got to tell you something. Even I went, wow, that's good. I, that's well, actually, really good. But to that point, I think his his biggest danger is in looking the, too left. No, not not looking too left, but he's not surrounded by enough political professionals. That's a good point. Good point. Congressman, I'll tell me a story quick. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, Washington State has nine. Uh, Congressional districts, uh, eight are for sure going to be reelected, and I suspect the ninth one will be as well, though uh, she um, probably, as a freshman, has, uh, has the biggest problem. Right. Interesting. A uh, couple of stories, because I'm moderate, I can do this. Uh, one. Time to go. No, VA. <laughs> VA Inspector General put out a report today that basically claims in their preliminary investigation that the deaths that occurred at the VA facility in Phoenix, Arizona, were not directly related to the scheduling issue. It is a. It is. It is getting a lot of criticism. The press got still, it wrong. What? I know. Shocking. Uh, but that that came out. Also today, it was announced here in the past 48 hours that. Burger King is being sold to Tim Hortons, a Canadian company. Tim Hortons, I got to tell you something. Oh, Canada. The criticism is that Burger King had attempted to move its corporate headquarters out of Miami, Florida to Toronto, Canada, which would have saved them an immense amount of money in tax breaks and an immense amount of money in employment. The Marlins are a better team. Uh, uh, that's debatable. But... Burger King announced today that they're going to stay in Miami. They, they're going to pay all their federal and their state and their local taxes. But why would Tim Hortons merge with Burger King? Why are you... I thought Burger King was buying them. But still, why would you sell Tim Hortons? The coffee and the donuts are so good. It's a Canadian staple. Have some pride in your country, people. They good were, Lord. Continue. They were always going to continue to operate as Tim Hortons. Yeah, but no. Donuts but, Canada. Yeah, but, oh, no, 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 no. Do not compare. Do not compare... Tim Hortons to the greatness of Dunkin' Donuts, oh, a this, Massachusetts bastion. The United States tax code is so screwed up it's true. that we have got to fix it. Burger King was going to go to Toronto? Good Lord. We, we blame these companies for trying to do, to do things to save money. Yeah. States, states bid for, for companies to come to them. It's the same thing, except it crosses international borders. They're a bunch yeah. of hoses, eh? Either, either Sandy Levin... Or Mr. Ryan will reform the codes next session in the uh, yeah. 2017 Congress. Well, well that's a prediction. That that are you? What, okay, you're cut off. No more alcohol for you. You're done. <laughs> you're done. With that, with that, on behalf of Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, Alan Moore, Denise Krep, Carl Tubin, 
Dan Lipner. I am your host, moderator Justin Russell. We will be back next week, as we are every week, uh, live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital. Well, Washington. every week, except when you go on vacation. <laughs> <laughs> oh, now I'm getting criticized like Obama? I go to Martha's Vineyard with Obama, and yeah. all of a sudden I'm criticized? Like now? I said, running for president. He's already mentioned putting the same phrase as Obama. <laughs> as I wear my rhino tie. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob? The place to be. You can follow us on our website, www.backroompolitics.org. You can download our podcast on several venues, including iHeartRadio, apparently. Did not know that either. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter, at Backroom Politics. You can also email your questions and comments to me, Justin, at BackroomPolitics.org. With that, we will see you. Have a great week, America. Bye-bye.
Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.